Um, We're going to jump back into Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, and continue our study in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me as I read God's Word. So please stand and give honor to God's Word as I read Exodus chapter 20. We'll read verses 1 through um, 17. And hear God's Word for God's people. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or as in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord's name, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the name in vain. Verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. On the seventh day is the Sabbath of your Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that the days you may be long in the land that you, the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false testimony or witness against your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant, female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's your word that informs us. It's your word that guides us. It's it's your word that tells us who you are, defines you, gives you, you, you reveal yourself through your word, and in that we rejoice. Thank you for your son Jesus that you sent to to be the perfect mediator for us, the one that would live the perfect life in our place, the one that would die on the cross, the one that would be raised from the dead. And thank you that he raised and ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he sent us your spirit and not your spirit that indwells us and leads and guides and directs us. And so Lord, may the spirit work in our hearts this morning to a very familiar passage, the Ten Commandments. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can go ahead and be seated. The Ten Commandments are familiar with us. And when I used to coach baseball, my son's teams, I, every year after tryouts, I would, you know, they'd come, they'd try out, and I would choose who I was going to take on, on my team. Renee Dillon, Logan's one of the guys that I played, good little baseball player. We love Logan. Um, but I would choose them, and I would have them come, and Renee's going to do it. I had what's called the Ten Commandments of Slugger Baseball. If you wanted to play on my team, not only after I chose you, I said, this is, this is the requirements. This is what I expect of you as a baseball player that plays for me. I want you to represent this, how you're going to re- represent this team, this city, etc. And so I had 10 commandments that we, we went through. And, and I'm, I'm not going to go in as detailed as I did with them, but I'm going to give you some highlights of those 10 commandments. The first commandment was this, I will have a good attitude at all times. Whether we win or lose, I will have a good attitude. Whether I play good or bad, I will have a good attitude. Number two, I will be a great team player. I will encourage my other teammates. Number three, I will not quit. 
because quitting equals selfishness. Number four, I respect my coaches, umpires, opposing players, opposing coaches, parents, etc. I will hustle at all times and be a good example for my teammates. Number six, I will improve as a player. I'll listen to my coaches and work hard at improving my mental and physical skills. Number seven, I will keep myself physically fit outside of practice. I will do extra work, sit-ups, push-ups, etc. Number eight, I will be, I will eat and sleep well. Number nine, I will be a good student. And Renee's favorite, number ten, I will tell my mom and dad that I love them often and I will obey my parents on a daily basis. This is, this is, this is kind of the, what represented the Sluggers baseball. And they had to sign it. And I have another one for the, the parents that we're going to actually talk about next week that they had to sign. But it's very much like what the Lord gives us here in Exodus chapter 20. The Lord calls Israel his own chosen people. And then he gives us these commandments, this Mosaic covenant. And these commandments are the stipulations of that covenant. This is what it looks like to represent me. This is what I, want, that's what I expect from you. And the question is for this morning, for us in the new covenant, because we're not under the Mosaic covenant, the question for us is, are these commandments for us today? Do we need to obey these Ten Commandments that was given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai several thousand years ago? Again, since we weren't there and we're under a different covenant, under the covenant, the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a massive debate on this question. You know, should we, shouldn't we? A bunch of theologians argue. And so I want to give you the camp that the crossing would fall in. This is the camp that the crossing would affirm. We would say, no, but yes. And you're like, well, that's a good postmodern answer, Aaron. Thanks for that, right? No, but yes. But really, that's what it is. Uh, No, they're not requirements for us to follow because we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, uh, We don't have to follow the stipulations of the old Mosaic Covenant. That was given to the nation Israel under the theocratic government that that God the Father was. We weren't there. That's not for us. We live under a different covenant. So, yes, we do need to obey them because if you're a Christian, as I said, you live under the new covenant. And in the new covenant, these commands are also given. These commands are also given to us in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. These commands are central to the ethics or the moral behaviors of the New Testament church. So, yes, we are to obey these commands. Jesus in Matthew 7, probably his most famous sermon, you guys are familiar with it, the Sermon on the Mount, he basically unpacked the Ten Commandments in that sermon. That was the majority, the main passage uh, or or topic in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew was, was Jesus unpacking the implications of these Ten Commandments. And what we find is, is that these Ten Commandments are actually broader, more weightier, and deeper than first understood in Exodus chapter 20. And yes, Jesus did fulfill perfectly the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. He fulfilled all these commandments. He didn't abolish the law, but He fulfilled them. But just because Jesus fulfilled them doesn't mean that now, because we're in Him, that we have no moral you know, commandments to follow. Again, these commandments are commanded again and are central to the New Testament church and the moral norms for believers in the New Covenant. They're known in the New Testament as the laws of Christ. The laws of Christ. This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 13. This is how he says it. Verse 8, he says, Owe no one anything except love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Or any other commandment are summed up in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. And what Paul is doing is just reiterating what Jesus did in Matthew. Matthew says, hey, this sums up what it means to be a Christian under my new covenant that you, first and foremost, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's your vertical relationship, and that then informs our horizontal relationships that you should love your neighbor. And to love your neighbor is to follow the second half of the Ten Commandments we find in Exodus, except for keep the Sabbath. That was the one commandment that's not mentioned in the New Testament. We'll touch on that briefly. So Paul is doing the same thing. So these commandments guide and direct our lives in the New Covenant. So yes, the crossing church, we are to observe and walk in them because This is what tells the world what love is. And this is what tells the world who Jesus is. John Calvin, we're going to talk about a lot about John Calvin today in the sense that he points us to some some great guidelines and how to implement the Ten Commandments in our lives, how the Ten Commandments should function in our lives. He he says there's three uses of the law. There's three uses of the law. And we, if we're Christians, have experienced all three. And even if we're not a Christian, we've experienced two of the three. Here is the first one. The first one is the law is used as a reflection in a mirror. As a reflection in the mirror. And what we mean by that is this. The law functions to expose our sin and unrighteousness. So when a person looks into the mirror of God's law, the Ten Commandments, Calvin says, he sees himself or herself as he really is. Apart from Christ, the law, the Ten Commandments, show us that we are sinful. That we that we are undone, that we are lost, and we need a cleansing. We need a Savior. And so that's what the law does. It it, it shows us our depravity, and it shows us our need for a Savior. And as Galatians 3 says, it, it says, tutor that points us then to Christ. Romans 3 says this, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So that's the first one. It's used as a reflection in a mirror. And I want you to hear what it's primarily not used for, first and foremost, that we kind of maybe use it for selfishly. We first and foremost use God's Word and God's law as binoculars to see other people's sin. Don't we? But that's not the primary use of the law. The primary use is to use it as a mirror to see our own sin. There's a guy that uses, uses basically this this tool or this, this principle of the law um, to evangelize. He's built a whole ministry out of it. And he, his guy's name is Ray Comfort, the way of the master. Who has heard of Ray Comfort, way of the master, right? He, he, this is what he does. He uses the reflection of a mirror. The law is a reflection of the mirror to bring people to Jesus. And he has a great ministry. And it goes on something like this. He'll meet with a, a, a young man, so to speak, on a college campus. And he'll be talking to him and saying, hey, you know, get to a question like, do you believe if you die, you'll go to heaven? Something along those lines. And, and, the, and the young man will be like, you know, he'll sway and pass. But then ultimately say, yeah, well, yeah, I think I will because I'm a good person. And that's like the, that's the hook he's looking for. He's looking for that, for that person to say, yeah, I'm a good person. He goes, oh, okay, are you a good person? Let's, let's use the Ten Commandments to see if you really are a good person. And he uses the Ten Commandments as a mirror, again, to show this individual his sin. And he says, have you ever lied before? And the guy says, well, of course I've lied. And he goes, well, what does that make you then? And the kid says, well, it makes me a liar. I goes, oh, okay. And all of a sudden it just clicked in his head. Oh, maybe I'm not so good. Then he says to this young man, hey, have you ever committed adultery? And the dude's like, man, I've never even got married. You know, I'm not married. I don't even have a wife, so how can I commit adultery? Well, Jesus said, 
that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what does that make you? It makes you an adulterer. Have you ever murdered anyone? No, I'm not, no I haven't murdered anyone. Well, you've heard it said that you should not murder, but Jesus said, goes in a little deeper, gets to the heart, says what? He says, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. So all of a sudden, by the time that Ray Cumber goes through all the ten, you don't need to go through the ten, we can just go through the three, the person he's talking to is like, oh, I'm really maybe not a good person after all, huh? I'm a liar, I'm an adulterer, and I'm a murderer. And then Ray says, but there's good news. That's not where we want to leave this conversation. These things just point us to your need for a Savior. Let me introduce you to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That He's the one that lived the perfect life in your place. Because you can't do it because you're not a good person. But Jesus is a good person. He's the perfect God-man who lived the perfect life in your place. He died on the cross to make payment for your sin. So it's used as a reflection. Second thing, the second use of the law. It's used as a restrainer from evil. This even benefits, again, the, the non-believer. So is the first one. But this also benefits the non-believer, one that doesn't know Christ. It, it's a restraint for you. Most, most countries use the Ten Commandments as their moral guidelines to direct their laws in society so their, their society is, is safe, right? Do not murder. Murder's bad in a number of different contexts. So you do not murder. So it helps restrain evil. Uh, no stealing. Just think about that. If there was a law called no stealing, you, you couldn't steal. Couldn't steal... I mean, that would be like, that'd be bad. Why? Because we do this every, every winter. It'd be like a perpetual white elephant gift party, right? In, in, in our country, right? Everyone's just stealing things and encouraging everyone to steal things, right? So that's not good. It's a restrainer of evil. It's also third, and this is where we look at it for us as Christians. It's a revelation of the will of God. It, it shows us how to live it, it, it's, a, it's guidelines to show us what the Lord expects for us to live and, and to receive joy and abundance in this life. It's, it's a guide. It's not, it doesn't save us. The law can't save us. As we already said, number one, the law is a mirror. It doesn't save us. It shows us and points us to the one whom saves us. So it, it's a guide after we're saved to guide and direct our sanctification. You think of it as a, a traffic signs. Traffic signs in, in our culture. They, they kind of guide and point us to help us get to our destination. Think of them as street signs, on and off ramps, traffic signals. If, if we follow the traffic signs, it's going to get us to our destination safely and we're not going to get in any accidents. That's what the God's Ten Commandments is for us in the kingdom of God as we walk through life. They're, they're guidelines. They're direct, they help us get to our destination without any accidents. So with this backdrop, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Now in Scripture... They're not known as the Ten Commandments. So that's how we know them. They're known as the Ten Words. The Ten Commandments. The first four is what we're going to look at today, and they deal with our vertical relationship with the Lord. All these commandments deal with our vertical relationship with the Lord. And then next week, we're going to look at the last six, and they deal with our horizontal relationships with one another. So let's look at Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And first, we have an intro to the commandments, a, the preamble, so to speak. And I love this. I love this. It says this, And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why do I love this? Because the Lord reminds us again, as we are prone to forget and wonder, that right off the bat, the first and the most important thing is remember your identity is in salvation and my grace that saved you, not in what you can do. It's not in your sanctification. It's what I have done for you, not what you can do. It reminds us that we are saved by grace 
of God first and foremost, and then we're called to obedience. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Your God. It doesn't say I am the Lord God. It says, no, I'm the Lord your God. There's a personal relationship to you. You're already on the team. You're in the family. You're saved. And now he gives the stipulations of the covenant to follow him. So what we see is the Ten Commandments were given after they've been redeemed from slavery and not given as a condition to be redeemed from slavery. And that's massively important. And it reminds us again, just as we looked at Exodus 19, 4 through 6, it's we're saved by, Israel was saved by grace as we are in the New Testament. I love how one commentator kind of explains this in verses 1 and 2. He says, if we, 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 we got in a time machine, we step back in the time, and, we, and we're at Mount Sinai with the Israelites up to this point in Exodus 19, and we grabbed one of them and said, hey, share, give us your story. Share your testimony with us. They might say something like this. We were in a foreign land, under bondage, under the sentence of death. But the mediator, the one who stands in between us and God, he came to us with the promise of God for deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God and took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on our way to the promised land. The commentator says that as Christians in the new covenant, we could almost say exactly the same thing word for word. And what's the point is that with salvation is by grace and faith alone. They look to Christ, we look back at Christ. So let's look at the first commandment. Verse 3, because I've saved you, because I delivered you, now here are the stipulations. This is what you must do. You shall have no other gods before me. Or literally, you shall have no other gods before my face, God says. This, this, is, this is the first and most important commandment. One of the reasons why is because this commandment does something. It first informs us who we are to worship. This is the heartbeat of this commandment, is that it focuses on having us having a certain exclusive relationship with the one true God. Then the other nine, they focus on certain actions we must do. So this is why this is so important. This focuses on the who. This focuses on the vertical. And again, as we say in here all the time, that the vertical relationship, our relationship with the Lord, now informs our horizontal relationships. And for Israel, them hearing this as the first command, it would have been mind-blowing for them. It would, have, it would have been radical. Because remember, they just spent 400 years in Egypt. And Egypt had more than one Lord, one God. They had hundreds of different gods that they worshipped. And all of a sudden, the Lord comes down, you shall have no other gods before me. In fact, not only Egypt, but every other nation of that time was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. And here God is saying, no, I am the God, the only God. You shall only worship me. Number one. All these other gods, false gods. All these other goddesses, false goddesses. Get them out of my face. Get them out of my face. This is the first commandment. And really, if you think about it, it's the same for us today. That, that sentiment is shared outside the church's walls. That, that, that spirituality, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, all these other cultures around us still worship multiple gods. And if we went into our culture, and we do go into our culture, and we claim the exclusivity of Christ, and what he said in John 14, 6, where he said, you want to go to heaven? I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You go preach that message on a college campus, guess what happens? 
you get canceled, right? The cancel culture is coming after you. This is talking about the exclusivity of Christ, and it's clear as day that God is the only God, and we are to only be in relationship with Him and give our worship and allegiance to Him and Him alone. One is said this way, this command is an either-or command, not a both-and. Not a both-and. Egypt, both-and. You could have this God plus all the other gods, both-and. Rome, you could have this God and all the other gods. Hinduism, you can have this God and all the other gods. Spirituality, you can have this God and all the other gods. Either, I mean, and, both and. Christianity says, no, either or. Either it's Jesus or none at all. We see this all over the Bible. Joshua 24 says this, choose this day whom you will serve. In 1 Kings, Elijah, how long will you be limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Jesus says this as well in Matthew 6, 24. In the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. It's either or, not both and. And real quick, I just want to quickly highlight this. In the New Covenant, in Exodus, when they heard, you shall not have any other gods before me. They had an idea of who God was and how God revealed them in their short time there. But now we have the full revelation of God and we understand that, that we worship the triune God. That we worship one God, monotheistic one God that reveals Himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus is God, and God's God. I know it's kind of crazy, but there's only one God, but He reveals Himself in three persons. We see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he goes down in John 1, 14, and he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was Jesus comparing himself with God. Here, they're at the Mount of Mount Sinai, and they hear the Lord's voice coming down. Hey, you shall only worship me. I am the only true God. Then we go to the, another mountain in the New Testament, the Mount of Transfiguration. God comes down. He's talking to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, with Elijah and Moses with them. And the Lord says, this is my beloved son. You shall listen to him. In other words, you shall worship him. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Lord. So therefore, when we talk about you shall another gods before me in the new covenant, new covenant, we worship Jesus. He is not another God. He is the one God that they're talking about. In Exodus, we just have better revelation, more specific revelation. Now, with that, John Calvin again uses the marriage relationship to illustrate this command, and I think he does a great job with it, that we are not to bring any other gods before his face. I had Rita sitting here with, with my family in the first service, and I had everyone turn their attention to her and see how she responded if I was to do something along these lines, that I would come home one day and I'd be like, babe, I love you. You, you, you know how much I love you. You're, you mean the world to me, so I brought you a gift. I bought you a gift. And here it is. It's another woman. It's another wife. Because, because I'm, a, I'm a dude that loves, and I, I just got to, you know, I got to share the love. I got to spread the love. And so I thought this would be great. I thought I'd bring another woman into our marriage. How do you feel about that? Right? And I was looking at her. She was like smiling, but like, I'll kill you smile, right? I mean, how do you think Rita would respond? Those of you that know my wife, how do you think she would respond to that gift? Yeah, she'd probably first knock the lady out and then drag her out of the house, right? 
Or if not, she'd be like, oh yeah, sure, Aaron, come on in. And then someone's not going to make it through the night, right? And who's that someone? Me. I'm probably not making it through that. She knows where my old baseball bats are in the house, right? No, it wouldn't be good. Why? Because it's not a both and. It's not Rita plus me plus another lady. And by the way, after that illustration, I talked to my wife and then I said, not only would you have to deal with her, but then I'm coming after you as well, dad, right? So anyways, no, because they know it's not a natural thing, but we laugh and giggle because we know it's not natural. It's either or. It's either Rita or no one else at all. And this is the same with the Lord. This is what this command is about. It's about the one God that we are to give our worship and allegiance to. This is who we are in relationship with. So, with that, let me just give you a couple questions um, to help flush this out in your own life, right? Um, because we, we confessionally, we, we, we say we are exclusively worshipers of Jesus, monotheism. We don't let anyone, any idols into our heart, but how does that flush out to us practically? How does it flush out practically in our lives? Do we say what we do? And this pastor gave a, um, a couple questions that I think help flush that out. And these are going to be some of your homework assignments. This is how you apply this in the weeks to come as you leave here. One, who is the first thing you praise for all the good things in your life? Who's the first thing? Well, what comes to mind when you think of all the good things in your life? Who do you, who do you think? Who do you praise? Is it yourself? Be like, man, look at this life I've created. I work so hard. I'm so smart. You know, I can make all this money. Man, I, good, good job. Good job, you know. Or is it, you know, your spouse? Or who, who, do, you, who do you thank for the Rocky Mountains, the, the sunset, first and foremost? Is it God or is it someone else? How about this? Who do you, who, who do you count on first? When the rubber meets the road, when you got to make that, you, you got to make that deadline. You got to do what? Who do you count on first? What first comes in your mind? I, I got to have that money. I, I need that doctor. Got to have that ice cream. You know, I don't know. What, what, what do you count on first? Or how about this one? Third question: Who do you call on when trials and difficulty and depression comes on you? Again, who? What, what, what's your first thought? Where do you go to? See, these are three questions that can kind of help us look at our lives like, yes, we, we say we worship the one and only true God, but in life, how is that lived out? And I know us living under the new covenant, there's a, there's a tension there, but that, it, those are just three questions to help us. We, we desire this, but sometimes we do this. But here's the good news. Remember, we're already saved. We're already in the kingdom. We're not talking about our identity we're talking about now what it looks like to walk in the kingdom of God. Even when we sin or even when we do put something else in front of the Lord, first and foremost, we're still on this team. God still loves us, but he's going to convict us and use things to get us back to help with that vertical relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before my face is the first commandment. Second one, verse four, second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water below or under the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We see in this second commandment, it's kind of twofold. You shall not make for yourself any carved images and you shall not bow to those things that you just make. And so the first commandment was talking about who we are to worship. This commandment tells us how we are to worship or how not to worship. Do not create an idol 
a physical image that you think is me, and then bow down and worship it. And I want to say this real quickly. This is not talking about art. Art is not bad. Being a sculptor is not bad. Being a craftsman is not bad. That's neutral. What this is talking about is heart idolatry. Something in your heart causes you to build something. So art is not bad. We celebrate art. We love art. But then this is, again, getting down to the deeper service of our hearts to craft something. And again, this would be another massive distinction between Israel and the surrounding nations because all the surrounding nations that worship multiple God had physical images. You guys just think when we went through um, the ten plagues with Egypt, there were, there were ten plagues. The ten plagues represented the ten gods, these, 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 these figures. And one of them was like Wajet. If you guys remember Wajet, Wajet was represented by the snake, the cobra that was on Pharaoh's head. You think about the, the river Nile, that was represented by Hopi. So, so the, the, everywhere around them, God says, hey, no images. I'm not, I'm not a physical, no physical images. And we can understand why there's two simple reasons why not to make an image of God and then bow down to it. Number one, because there's no one image that can capture the essence of who God is in all of his attributes and all of his characteristics. There's no one animal. There's no one thing that could encapsulate everything or who God is. It's like impossible. It'd be like trying to fit the Pacific Ocean in a 32 ounce tumbler. It's just not going to happen. It won't give you an accurate representation of the ocean that's in my tumbler. We know in Exodus chapter 32, Israel will build this golden calf. Like Moses up in the mountains is like, man, we want to have something that represents the, the God that we heard spoke in Exodus 19. We want, to, we want something to represent that, so they build this golden kind of bull calf. And, and that just fires God up because that doesn't represent Him. It might represent Him a little bit in His strength and His power, but it has no, no resemblance to His grace. His mercy, His love, His generosity. So that's why you don't create an image because it gives us an incomplete view of God which then leads us down to false worship. So that's number one. Number two, the reason why we don't create them because they're not real. <laughs> they have no power. They have no life. Habakkuk says this, what profit is it for an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For the maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, or to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Even though it's, made, it's, it's overlaid with gold and silver, even though we make it look pretty, it has no breath. I mean, think about how crazy that is. Now you, get, you go up to Rocky Mountain National Park, you cut down a tree, you bring it back to your garage, and you carve out this little statue and this image. And then you got, you know, you got, got all the wood shavings there, so you got to clean it all up. Then you go take that to the trash. Then you come back in your garage and you bow down and start to worship it. I mean, that's insanity. But this is what happens. Basically, what you have made is you just have made a paperweight. That's what you've made. So that's the second reason. Because it's, there's li it's lifeless. It has no power. So again, what, what the heartbeat of the second commandment is, is getting at idolatry, a heart idolatry. Heart idolatry. Idolatry is this. Idolatry is putting someone, an athlete, singer, actor, spouse, kids, it could be good or bad, or something, money, physical appearance, job, etc., in the place of God. That's what an idol is. That we put someone or something in God's place. Romans 1 says this, idolatry is the exchange of the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what an idol is. 
Now, we know this is not just an ancient problem. This is just a wasn't just Egypt's problem and Israel's problem back then. It's our problem this morning. Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. They, they're constantly producing idol factories. It's, it's a constant. It's part of the fall that we got to battle. Again, I mentioned today is Super Bowl Sunday. There will be millions upon millions across the globe. So this is a global thing. That their happiness rests or their unhappiness rests in life, over the next several weeks and maybe years, by men chasing a ball, whoever has the ball. Right? Their life will be wrecked either way. Either happiness, joy, 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 because my team won, or man, they'll be in the tanks because my team lost. Again, idols aren't just carved images and statues. They can be. But for us, they can also be sports teams, sports stadiums, music venues, skyscrapers, but they can also, like I said, they can also be good things that we make idols, our, our spouses, our jobs, our kids, our grandkids, etc. So we know there's a battle in our hearts, and the Lord says, hey, let me give you, let me help motivate you not to break this command, I'm a jealous God. Look at it. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. The reason why you don't bow down to them, because I'm a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy, we immediately think of sinful, selfish, negative behavior. A a, a behavior that hurts people because of something that we don't have, right? I don't have this. I wish I had that. Therefore, I go do something crazy to gain that. That's not what jealousy is talking about with the Lord here. Here in, in the Bible, better word to associate jealousy with is zeal or passion or burning. I love how one sums it up. He says this, jealousy focuses on what one has a right to. So this is good. One has a right to. And is an intense preoccupation to take action to guard and keep a relationship. So you're already in a relationship. You have a right to it. And you want to guard and keep it because it's good. And when God says that to Israel that He is a jealous of the relationship He has with them, He means that He is committed to maintaining it and dealing with it and all that threatens its integrity. So in other words, there's a relationship with God and Israel and God's jealous because He knows there's things that are going to come in, come in outside and try to tear apart their relationship. And He knows that He is the best thing for them. If they want life, if they want joy, if they want happiness, it's in a relationship with Jesus, uh, with God, with Jesus. But if someone comes in and takes them away, God gets jealous because they're taking them away from what is good and right that will give them blessing, and He's moving them away to something that's going to destroy and break down their lives. And that's why God is jealous. He wants to keep the relationship pure. So God's jealousy is good. In fact, it's for our good. He doesn't want anything to come in to separate us from our relationship with Him. His jealousy is a good, perfect, righteous zeal for your well-being and my well-being. And this jealousy is expressed in two ways, he says. A warning and a blessing. Look at Exodus again. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here's the warning. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Verse 6, here's the blessing but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now real quick, some take this text and run with it in a direction that it does not intend to go. I, I need generational curses. Generational curses. They say, look, if your father hates the Lord, 
then basically you're screwed. The next three to four generations are screwed because I'm just going to pour out iniquity. You have no say whatsoever in your own life. It's all, all represented on your father. And that's not what this warning is about. We know this because Ezekiel 18 verse 20 tells us that every per, everyone is responsible for their own sin. And because again, we live in the, the new covenant under the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that that Jesus' gospel, His love, His mercy is better and stronger and more powerful than sin. It doesn't come in and say like, oh wait, your father hates you. Oh, I got to come back in three and four generations then I can actually come into your life. No, that's not what it is. The gospel is so powerful that He can come into your life now and today. We have many in this room that have had or have bad fathers and mothers, parents, etc. that have that are totally want nothing to do with Jesus and have tried to do everything to take you away from Jesus, and yet by God's grace, He has saved you. He has saved you. His mercy, His love, His grace. And maybe, maybe I was talking with Daniel, he said, this is a great, great opportunity to share the gospel. And maybe you're in here today, and this, today is the day of salvation for you. You're not being guided and directed by your father or your parents because they hate and they're trying to take you away. But for whatever reason, they find you, you find yourself here or online and you're hearing the gospel and as God calling you home to himself. So that's, that's what it's not. So what is the warning though? It is saying that fathers and parents, moms, grandparents, but primary fathers because we are responsible in scripture for our families. Fathers, our sins have consequences. Our sins do filter down to our children. They can trickle down and influence our children. And if the children then take what we've given them or put them on the path of direction, they own it for themselves and start hating God, that's when God says bad things are going to happen. My judgment's going to come down on you. There will be severe consequences. But the opposite is true. If we as fathers, parents, moms, grandparents love the Lord, we, we don't bow down to images, but we worship the one true and living God, and we point our children on that path, then there is blessing. Then there is joy. Then there is hope. Then there is, again, abundance of blessing in this life. And notice, notice the disparity between blessing compared to warning. Again, this is hyperbole. Don't think like these are like literal things. God is just, just using hyperbole to describe this. Blessing versus warning. God blesses way more than He judges. He blesses, look, thousands of generations. So as, as, as parents, as influences of our kids, as we point them in the right direction, they start to follow and embrace on their own the gospel and Jesus as their own Lord and Savior. There is blessing upon 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 blessing. You guys get the picture? As opposed to just three and four generations. God is a God who wants to bless and he does. And so let's, let's just pause real quickly. This is so important for us as, as men, as fathers, as leaders of our home, as well as ladies and mothers. But again, the onus here on Scripture for this our time now is fathers. He calls out the fathers. Is the influence that we have on our children. And so, fathers, we are called to be spiritual thermostats, not spiritual thermometers. And what I mean by that, what does a thermostat do? It sets the temperature in our home, right? 
That's what a thermostat does. We want it to be 75 degrees in our home. Heater, 75 degrees. I was going to say cooler either way, somewhere, right? We, we set the temperature. That's what it's going to be. And that's what we're called as fathers to do in our home. We set the spiritual temperature of our home. We're not um, thermometers where we just react. Oh my gosh, this is what, oh, this is what my kid's feeling. Now I got to react. No, we respond preemptively by setting the temperature in our home to help our children worship the Lord correctly and put away idols. Well, what's one way we can do that? One way we can do that, that's spoken of, is by the Word. It's by pointing our children to worship the one and true living God through the way He has called us to worship. And let me just say, if you're single in here, if you're a young married couple, your your ears should be up because this is for you as well to, to think through, to start preparing to start setting the temperature in your own life so that you can pass that on to your wife and your kids. But one of the ways we can set the spiritual temperature in our home to be spiritual uh, thermostats is this, through His Word. Again, it's through His Word. I love this. Again, I've already alluded to it. When the Lord came down from Mount Sinai, again, He didn't give a a physical form or physical image for them to worship and bow down to. When we went to, again, uh, the Mount Transfiguration, He does the same thing. He doesn't give... Peter, James, and John, a physical form. He just uses his voice. He uses his word to guide and direct them. This is how I want to, you to worship. Listen to my son. He uses his word. And so what we see throughout Scripture is God reveals himself specifically and primarily through his word. Through his written revelation and not through created images. We're raising kids right now, and there's a saying out there for our kids that they're getting bombarded with TV, music, teachers, whatever. And the, the thing is they're getting bombarded with is seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. Well, according to Scripture, it's we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. According to Scripture, our faith comes through hearing first and foremost. Romans 10 and 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. And so, fathers, parents, if you want to set the temperature and you want to help your children get off on the right foot and start life going downhill and not hiking uphill, it's be ministers of the Word of God to your kids. Let them hear the voice of God through His revelation, His Word. Man, time is flying by, so I've got to quickly rip through the third and fourth commandment. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You know, when we hear this, we immediately think, don't cuss, right? That's immediately what we think, don't cuss. Don't say Jesus Christ in an unworthy manner, and that is true. But again, we're getting at a deeper level under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. It's in our hearts. And what this commandment is about is much greater than just what you say. It's about your whole lifestyle. It's what you say. It's what you do. It's how you live. It's the decisions that you make in your families. Not to take the Lord's name in vain is to represent is to not represent the way God is represented in His Word. In other words, if you say you're a Christian, if you're a New Covenant believer, you carry the banner of Christ over your head. 
to take the Lord's name in vain and be like, yes, I love Christ. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm a worshiper of Jesus and you own a strip club. That doesn't fly. Why? Because that contradicts God's word. Or like, yes, I'm a Christian. Well, God's word, he says, all these, all these commandments in the New Testament, New Covenant are summed up by love. Loving your neighbor. And if you're constantly doing stuff to your neighbor's yard because you don't like him, that's not taking the Lord's name in vain. Why? Because you're not representing the Lord the way he's revealed himself in Scripture. So, so it's more than just your words. It's, it is your words, but it's your life's actions. Do they represent the way the Lord has represented himself in his word? That's what it means not to take his Lord in vain. In other words, don't drag the Lord's name through the mud. Fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then he goes off and he gives this illustration about, he points us to the Lord and how the Lord created six days and how he rested on the seventh day. And then again, nation Israel, in chapter 16, they, this command was actually, was actually kind of alluded to in, the, in chapter 16 where they, they were in the desert and they had to collect manna, right? You guys remember that, right? And they said, you collect manna every single day just for that day, except on the sixth day you collect double because on the seventh day you rest. So the principle here is that you work six days and then you rest. You work, you rest. You work, you rest. The Sabbath means rest. To rest from work. And here in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, they were to take the Sabbath day, the Saturday back in that time, and just not do anything except worship God. To focus on worshiping the Lord. The problem is, by the time you get to the New Testament, the Jews in Israel, the day of rest became a day of work because they had all these other extra laws that you couldn't do and it just became a burdensome. So they weren't resting even though they were supposed to. They were working. Now again, I said that this commandment is the only commandment in the New Testament that's not, it's not, it's not carried over from Exodus that's commanded in the New Testament because are we to work? Yes. Are we to work hard? Yes. But it's not about just setting aside one day of the week to worship the Lord. So it's not about a day. The Sabbath is a person. The Sabbath is Jesus. Our rest is in Jesus. That's where we rest. That's where our hope is. That's where we Sabbath. So every single day is a day to honor and rest in the Lord. Now, there's also a good principle just physically that even though it's not commanded, but still a good biblical principle for us to take a day off and rest physically. We see that God did it in creation. We see that here it's here in Exodus. And we know the effects of sin in our life right now as well physically. And it's, all, it's good. It's not good to work seven days a week and constantly work and never take a break. So it's still a good principle for us to abide by in the new covenant. But again, this is not just about worshiping on a single day, it's about worshiping every single day in our Sabbath rest, who is Jesus Christ. So with that, how do we sum up all this? How do we, what, what, can, what can we do? We've given some practical principles um, to ask ourselves the questions of where I always just set the spiritual temperature, but even this week, even this way, what, I want you to think, what one thing, what one thing this week is competing with these commands. In other words, that is trying to steal you 
that's trying to become before the face of God and steal your vertical relationship with the Lord? What's trying to come in and impede that and hurt that process and take you away? Just think of one thing, one idol that you and I, well, that you battle with in your life and then focus on attacking that idol. Because we know that we don't do this perfectly. We can't do this perfectly. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we're not talking about keeping these as your identity and your standing, your right standing with the Lord. That's not what it's talking about. We're already saved. And even when we sin, our identity doesn't change. We are still a child of the King. He still loves us and He's proud of us. But we still, in the sanctification process, do tend to fall away. So how can we battle? What is that one thing that you want to battle and attack this week? And the first thing we do is we attack it with the gospel. What we just talked about. That my identity is not wrapped out, wrapped in what I do for Jesus. My identity is wrapped in what has been done for me by Jesus. That's where we begin. God's not angry or disappointed in you. He's, again, you are a child of the King. From there, we then go to the steps. Well, what does it look like? Repentance. Lord, yes, please forgive me for my pride. Please forgive me for my lust. Please forgive me for my coveting. Please forgive me for my lie. Whatever that may be for you, you attack it through confession. And then you attack it through God's Word. You, you go to the promises of God, and this is where you rest. So what is that one thing for you this week that you can attack that's, that's hindering or trying to come in between your relationship with the one true and living God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that thousands of years ago You gave these commandments to the nation of Israel. But then, fast forward to the New Testament that Jesus fulfilled these commands and now these are commandments for us. Again, not for identity, not for salvation. We are already saved. We are already on the team because of what Jesus has done for us. But, but how to live, how to show people around that, that do not know you how good you are in our lives. Uh, th- these commandments help us live a holy life. They are, again, traffic signs to help us navigate this life so that we may get to our destination with joy and with not any accidents. And so, Lord, I pray as we, we are each, each individually thinking about what is maybe just one of those things, one of those idols that tries to steal and get in between you and our relationship that we would fight that with the gospel and with God's word this week. In Jesus' name, amen.